0: Welcome to the Building Texas Business Podcast. Interviews with thought leaders and organizational visionaries from across industry. Join us as we talk about the latest trends, challenges, and growth opportunities to take your business to the next level. The Building Texas Business Podcast is brought to you by Boyer Miller, providing counsel beyond expectations. Find out how we can make a meaningful difference to your business at boyermiller.com and by your podcast team where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Discover more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, Chris Hanslick.
1: In this episode, you will meet Elaine Turner, founder of Edit by Elaine Turner and Elaine Turner Designs. Elaine's entrepreneurial passion centers around fashion and lifestyle brands, but her true passions are serving her community and empowering and supporting women through education, connection, and philanthropy. All right, let's get going. I cannot wait for this episode. I'm so excited to have Elaine Turner here. Elaine, thanks for joining me today.
0: Oh, I love being here. Thanks for having me.
1: So, one of the things, my that I love about you is you. you, by any definition, are a serial entrepreneur, and I think those are my favorite people to talk to. So let's talk about what you're doing today with Edit by Elaine Turner. Tell us what that is. Yeah.
0: So I just opened a new store concept here in Houston in Tanglewood, and the store is called Edit by Elaine Turner. And really, the whole idea of the store was concepted from a place of renewal and redemption, because we can talk about my story Beforehand, but it was all about this idea of curating hard to find European luxury upscale brands for the Houston clientele who I felt like, you know, the art of discovery, like what else? She goes to Tootsie's and she goes to Neiman's and Saks and Nordstrom's, and we're lucky we live in this incredible cosmopolitan city full of all the options, but I wanted to to offer her something that maybe wasn't so out there and so ubiquitous. And so Edit was really born from the art of creation. Like I will be your editor and I will go out and find these really unique pieces for you to engage in and add to your wardrobe.
1: That's great. So there's some, there's actually some real meaning behind the word edit then, right? Yes. So edit is
0: about not only let me edit for you and find those unique, hard to find pieces, but it's also about, for me personally, sort of leaning into this idea of as women and as consumers, we only ultimately need what's essential. And I think as we age and we become more mindful about what we put on our bodies, what we put in our bodies, that, you know, we don't, it's not always about quantity, right? We don't have to buy like You know, every trend that's ever offered to us, like we can be more thoughtful about what we choose. And so it's about letting go of the unnecessary and really retaining what's of value to you. And so edit is supposed to be all about that. Like I'm saying, this is what's of quality to you.
1: I love that. I love the thought behind it. Thank you. Because you're right. You can go into any store and get stuff. So, you know, this is one, this is an episode where I'm like, there's so many different directions to go with you. But I think you're right. You talked about renewal and redemption You have an amazing story because this is your second go at it. And the first was successful. Sometimes people's second goes coming out of failure. Let's talk about your passion and what got you into the kind of the fashion industry. Talk a little bit about that first venture, I think, in doing that. What inspired you to start what was called Elaine Turner or Elaine Turner Designs back in what,
0: 1999, 2000? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 20, almost
1: 24 years ago. A while ago, Chris. You must have been an
0: infant. (laughs) I was 29 or 30 when I started Elaine Turner Designs. And really, my story really comes from an origin story of entrepreneurship. That's the number one thing. I was born in a family of entrepreneurs, and I'm kind of a believer that entrepreneurship is sort of passed on through DNA. I think you've got to be a little left of center to engage in being an entrepreneur because it's high risk you kinda it's lonely, you know, you're the one kind of putting yourself out there, thinking of these ideas and visions and you're all you know, usually entrepreneurs are trying to solve problems. So they're thinking, Hey, what's not out there that could be out there? And I watched both of my parents start companies and both of my siblings also at one time had their own companies. And so I feel like for me, it was sort of osmosis. You know, I was very much inspired by my parents. They were my mentors growing up. And so I always knew when I went to school, I went to UT and I majored in advertising marketing, but I always knew I wanted to do something in fashion because my mother always encouraged, you know, this is how you express yourself. And it was always done from a more thoughtful, deep way. She was saying, not just fashion, you know, because of materialism, but she would literally watch me walk downstairs and say, oh, you have a gift. Like, you should really <laughs> think about something in fashion. Like, this is a, a, the art of communication. You know? mean, she,
1: she wasn't one of those moms that looked at you and goes, you're not
0: wearing that one. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe a couple of times. <laughs> you know, it's an evolution, Chris. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that I came out of the gate putting all the outfits together right. But she always encouraged me on a much deeper level that I think this is something that you should offer the world, you know. And so even in my teens in my twenties, I knew I wanted to do something in fashion. And so I went to UT and then I immediately called a mentor of mine, Joanne Burnett, and said, I really want to do something in the fashion industry. And she said, Hey, there's this company out of Dallas. You should Talk to and they might give you kind of an assistant job in the fa- in the design area or whatever. And So it just was a super you know very organic growth for me. Back when I was at UT, there was no fashion merchandising program, so that wasn't it. So I had to learn everything in the job, you know, on the job and have like mentors train me. Right. But always knowing I wanted to start my own thing. Okay. And that was always there. It didn't really happen. Like some people say that sort of happened. By happenstance, for me, it was pretty intentional that I knew in my 20s I wanted to learn everything and then I wanted to start my own business.
1: So, you know, that's, I hear that story a lot, but you also hear the ones where, like you said, there's a problem to solve and someone says, okay, I'll I'll do this. Let's talk about uh, taking you back to that 28 to 29 year old self when you said, okay, now it's time. Mm -hmm. You know, some people, you know, are scared to take that step. I mean, let's talk about and kind of educate the audience. You know, what was it like for you? to get to the point where I'm ready to take this risk. Yeah. What was that like? What did you learn from that experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think I knew when I was 29, I had learned a lot in New York. I went from Dallas to New York and worked for several companies in New York. And I started recognizing in the market that accessories were really taking a much bigger I would say segment of the market. So like the big designers at the time, like Donna Karen and Ralph Lauren and all that, they were starting to do these handbag collections or accessory collections, right? Okay. Where they were really starting to kind of form a look and a name for themselves in that area. And Kate Spade was just coming on the scene. And I thought, oh, there's something there that I think that there was a void that I could fill, like an accessible price point point. And I really focused on novelty applications, so I was really known for this resort wear look, where I did raffia wrap bags and tortoise shell handles, and I did a lot of specialty leathers like python leather leathers with multicolor. So a lot of novelty, right? Okay. From Texas, so color and bold. And so I started thinking to myself, well, what if I did a small handbag collection and put it out in the market? And I really thought about my price point because I wanted it to be accessible luxury price point. And started to see if I could sell my wares, you know, and I had just moved back from New York to Houston. And my first, literally, I have this memory, my first account was walking into Tootsie's and Mickey Rosemary meeting with me in private and saying, I'll carry all your collection on consignment for the first six months. And if it does well, then I'll start buying it. Wow. And so I said, it's a deal. And then that was how I started. And the bags were made in Brooklyn. And he really mentored me on price and segmentation of the market and who you're catering to and the look and feel of the bags. And he was a huge part of why the company grew because he really helped me understand, I think, from a little bit more of a mass perspective, how to grow the business and not keep it so boutiquey, right? right. But to be able to… Got to so, get a scale to it. Exactly. And then I was able to get into Neiman, Sachs, and Nordstrom and started growing a really large business from there.
1: So, okay, as you got this fashion mind and creative mind. I mean, what were some of the things that you had to learn to grow that business uh, to scale? Let's talk about that. I mean, and if you think about something like a failure, man, that that went horribly wrong. But by gosh, I'm glad it did because I learned so
0: much. (laughs) Many failures and challenges and opportunities along the way. But I mean, I think that what I learned is... The idea was really about offering sort of this accessible, ladylike, elegant accessory line to women who I felt like that wasn't really happening. Like as much as I loved Kate Spade, it was very basic at the time. It was like nylon little shopper bags, yeah. right? No offense, Kate. So, no, we yeah. love Kate, but I'm, and now it's very novelty. So we all evolve. But at that she time, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. at that time it was just this really simple kind of utilitarian shopper bag and. So I felt like I had a niche and like, let's add novelty into the handbag space. And the handbags were really becoming this sort of individualistic part of fashion. It's like, you know, wear a dark suit, but what's the special handbag that just pops off you? Like what makes it almost that final touch? And so for me, the challenges, I think what I learned is, okay, how do I retain the novelty and the specialty part, retain the price keep the price where it needs to be, but also have a product that is appealing to a lot of women. Because I was growing scale, I mean, I was right. like, I want to open stores, I want to be in wholesale. I mean, I had my own New York showroom, and so some of the challenges, like an example, was I decided to spin off and do a real high end, more I don't know couture is not the right line, but a real high end luxury line in Italy, but to keep my more accessible. So like the bags were in from like one ninety five to five hundred. That was okay. kind of where I sat. Well, then I thought, let me go off and try these thousand dollar bags. Well, it ended up being a huge flop, which is okay. But it, I realized that. By doing that, I grew too fast and I was trying to appeal to a different customer too quickly before the brand had really penetrated and distributed mm-hmm. distribution enough in those places. So it was like I jumped the gun. Right. And then I don't think I had exhausted the price point that I was in. So that was one failure or challenge that I kind of pulled back on and thought, well, I think I did that too soon. Cause yeah. you know, it's a big investment. You're investing in real Python lovers and you're doing it I'm in sure. Italy and these little family owned factories and, but you learn from it, you know, you learn like, no, go back to your core. Don't get away from it so quickly But I, you know,
1: that's to me, what's so fascinating is getting back, you know, or staying and knowing your core because the story you just told, I've heard told in many different industries, right? So it is applicable across industries. So you kind of confused the identity of the company. Yes.
0: That's that's exactly right.
1: core. And you have to be careful, and as an entrepreneur, be careful not to do that. And and if you're going to, make sure, you know, I think it's a delicate thing to do. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that it can happen in any industry. So right in the handbag and fashion. You can
0: dilute that core customer who's so loyal to you. And I think what happens with entrepreneurs that we all fall a little bit victim to, and I, I think speaking, someone might relate to this, is that you're constantly thinking of the next thing. Because that's just... You're always filling that void. Well, like, that, I don't see enough of that at that price point. Let's make it ourselves. Yeah. And sometimes those ideas and that vision can get ahead of you. And then you have to be able to pivot and say to yourself, wait a minute. I think I jumped too quickly. Because entrepreneurism is really about creation, right. and vision, and filling the void and solving the... But sometimes you can almost go so far that you go too fast. How you did know? you
1: regulate yourself in that? Oh, was it, was it surrounding yourself with a with team? Was it just learning from trial and error and going, I need to learn when I need to pump the brakes.
0: I mean, it's a combination. I was lucky. I've been very blessed. My husband has always been a deep, strong partner to me. And he helped me with, at first, he didn't really get involved. He ended up full-time working with me in the business about after seven years of me being in business. And then he started really helping me. But he was always a more cautious one to be like, let's just, let's really exhaust what we're doing right now. But then seemed to have a really deep understanding of timing of like, for example, I got into the shoe business and I was really nervous about that after what happened with the high collection. And the shoe business did incredible for me. And in fact, I think if you talk to women today, that was really the category that they were the most wedded to. So it, but it was the timing. I had enough, you know, I had had enough brand awareness. I had multiple stores at the time. She was the loyalty and also the trust was built up at that time. Whereas when I jumped to the real high end bags, I don't think I was quite there yet. So a lot of things are timing, you know, when to be, you know, you have to be really thoughtful about when you do big expansion moves. And I think the shoes happen at just the right time that yeah. she was ready for that. You yeah,
1: know, a lot of it is timing, right? It is. Let's go back kind of the high end handbag. Uh, so another thing that's hard for people, especially entrepreneurs to do is to kind of admit that failure. Oh, yeah. How hard and what, and what advice would you give to say you got to know when and it's okay Cut it and say, this just wasn't, this didn't work, whatever it may be.
0: I think it's one of the most important things you can do being a business owner. And I mean, honestly, just being in business at, at a certain level is to know when to look in the mirror be accountable and look at it not as a failure, but as a huge opportunity for growth. And also when that stuff happens and it's happened to me multiple times, it also models for the people before you that it's okay. It's okay to go, you know, this worked, this didn't. So, how do we get out of this in the most thoughtful way, also, the less you know the way economically that doesn't hurt us as badly, but it having that courage to know when to sell, when to get out of a lease, when to liquidate a product that didn't sell you know those are all just parts of being in business, and I think what happens with people who end up really struggling as their egos become so involved and the pride takes over that they aren't willing to take a step back and say, this doesn't mean I failed. This means that I have an opportunity to change something that didn't go as expected. And that's also personal. Like forget business. How about marriages and friendships and relationships and how we navigate the earth. I mean, sometimes we just gotta look in the mirror and say, we gotta redefine this. Yeah. And that's yeah. actually a beautiful thing. And it's to me like winning in life. It's not failure.
1: I agree. I mean I think it's a mindset. And so I say all the time, no bad experiences, just learning experiences.
0: That's it. But I'm inspired. Yes. That's it. I think uh, we, you could have answered the question. <laughs> okay,
1: so you have this going, you expand the shoes, you have stores that took people So how did you build a team and and how would you, when you look back, how how would you verbalize and describe the culture that you built at Elaine Turner? That's
0: such a nice I love well, I loved all of that. And I especially loved the culture and the brick and mortar aspect. I think that we spent so much time and energy focusing on the community. And we had we were I'd like to say we were one of the first retailers in texas to build a charity platform within our brick and mortar where we had an event-based charity platform so each month we would hold several events and team up with charities and sort of have a win situation where we donate a certain amount of proceeds and then they get to experience elaine turner and what we're making and creating and you know and today you see it across the board with tori birch has a women's foundation and um, kendra scott has a huge event platform but i it was something that the brick and mortar stores were really an integrated, intimate experience with the community. And it meant that's probably one of the biggest things that I take away that I'm the most proud of is what I created within those stores. I really created a place for women to connect one an- with one another, to educate one another, to inspire one another, and to give back to the community.
1: Yeah. So it's beautiful, but it takes more than you if it's going to transcend right, right into the different brick and mortar locations because you can't be everywhere all the same time. So what were some of the things that you did as you hired, whether it was store managers or, you know, whatever your involvement was to make sure that the people you were hiring connected with that vision and that passion?
0: It's, you know, hiring your team is the most foundational, essential part of how you win as an entrepreneur. And it's not easy. And sometimes even within that, you make mistakes and vice versa. I'm talking like that person might make a mistake that they even chose to come work for me. And then I realize it wasn't the right fit on our side. It's very reciprocal. There's no one that's above anybody else. It's just sometimes the fit's not there. But... I, we had become so well versed in who we were culturally that we were all about, you know, intimate experience, giving back, fun. Luxury was one of our big. We are all about having fun. It's not. We don't take ourselves too seriously. You don't have to wait in some line where there's a, you know, bouncer. You don't have to act like we're not too exclusive for you. Right. We are an enveloping culture, and so it it became where we actually. And I'm saying at the beginning, there were some probably bumpy roads, especially as we started getting into retail. But as we really started building this store footprint across Texas, we got pretty good at those managers and had really low turnover, you know, where we really... I built and we had a store director who had come from Michael Kors who really understood how to build that team culture. But I mean, some of my most prized employees at the time were the people who were running those stores. They just got it, you know. And then sometimes it didn't, and that's okay too. It is.
1: You know? I mean, look, hiring is an imperfect process, yeah. right? <laughs> and I think, but if you have a core identity that you know, And you'll know when there's a fit and when there's not. Exactly. And then the key is, if it's not a fit, to move fast.
0: Yeah. And they've all gone on. I mean, it's just interesting you've asked me this question because we are going pretty personal, but. You know, as I was a launching Edit, I started looking for some of my older leaders that I loved, and they—I mean, I look at my husband. I'm like, oh, they're running one's running Carolina Herrera here in Houston, another one's store director of Kate Spade, another uh, Jim's like, well, we you know help to give them that foundation, and that's awesome. But I mean, nothing makes me feel better about right. myself to see some of those women soar in the retail space, it's like a proud parent, yeah, right? yeah, and beautiful people. So that's
1: good. That's so good. So. As you ran the company, I know you got to a point where you decided it was kind of time to put things down. Yes. And the original Elaine Turner, you closed over a period of time. Mm -hmm. That had to be a pretty difficult decision, an emotional decision, because it it was born out of passion, right? It
0: was very difficult, Uh, yes.
1: People come to those, you know, face those roadblocks or those forks in the road. You know, how did you go about kind of handling that and then coming to grips that it was okay.
0: I mean, I think just like anything, it's been a journey to get to the acceptance or for me to find that acceptance around that initial Elaine Turner Designs journey. But there was a lot of things, it wasn't an overnight thing, that were leading up to me realizing that I needed to hit a button in my life. And just like anything else, Chris, it's never just usually one thing. It's usually a series of things. Sure. You know, I mean, it's kind of morbid, but they always say like a plane crash doesn't just happen with one wheel falling off. It's usually a series right. of things. <laughs> and at the time, you know, that has been almost six years, retail had really shifted dramatically from... More of a brick-and-mortar clienteling experience to kind of the Amazon age being very real, which is all about ease and convenience, right? right. And so, and then I'm always very transparent and vulnerable about my business. The capital was really put into the brick-and-mortar experience, and I was behind on the digital aspects. I was, and that, you know, that's just... I can totally admit that today. It wasn't that I didn't have it, but I didn't have it near like some of my competitors had it, right? And so I had to really come to grips with that reality that the store traffic had started to dwindle and women were really calling for the digital experience and saying, look, I don't want to find parking at your store. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm really moving into this idea that the package is dropped. I can return it and put a sticker on it. And so my husband and I were just sort of playing catch up. And then alongside that challenge, which was immense... I personally have an autistic daughter who was also reaching teen, tween age and starting to really have a deep awareness of her differences and struggling mental um, health wise. So I needed to find out how I could intervene and get her in a better place. And then both of my parents were diagnosed with terminal illnesses at the same time. Oh, wow. And that's when I said, okay, yeah. God, like, I hear you, I get you and I'm not a failure. I need to change my life and I have. And I took right. those years to caretake and get people what they needed. Because even though I'm a passionate business person, I am a very driven, very ambitious. I am also just as passionate and just as, I mean, it's my whole life or my is my family. Yeah. And so I knew that at that time, I couldn't just be everything. I, I couldn't do it all at the same time. I realized I couldn't be and do it all at the same time, but that was okay.
1: That You know, it's a beautiful story. I know they're, they're, those things aren't fun to go through. I'm so sorry yeah, to hear. Yeah. But there's seasons in life, right? Yes. And I think, you know one of the, there's always lessons in every story and, and there's a lesson in what you just said to me. And that is as passionate as you are about your business, keep your priorities straight. Yeah. Family always comes first Yeah. and you're right. It, it didn't define who you were to shut the store down. Right. So that's, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing and I'm sure it was hard to go yeah, through. Thank you. I want to take you back to something you said, because I think there is some learning in, and I always have a question for you because you said, look, I, I realized I was behind in the digital, mm-hmm. right? I was in the brick and mortar When you look back at that, was that a function of you just truly believed brick and mortar was the way to go and this digital was a flash in the pan? Or do you think you miscalculated the the digital presence and how it was really going to affect the industry and change the industry?
0: I, it was not at all discounting digital. I had a very built out website, three full-time employees who worked on my, and so it was honoring that digital was real. I had no idea how quickly the digital consumer you know landscape would shift. It was I, one of the most massive market shifts, I think, if, if you've studied it, yeah, that's ever happened. It happened so fast. I mean, the Amazon age is real. It just took over business. It was just all of a sudden you're buying on this interface and you're not walking into stores as much. And it was, it happened so fast. Like I remember my husband was like, we got to hire more digital people. And we started hiring him. But as quickly as we'd hire them, it was just like our competitors were starting to offer, you know, free returns, all this stuff. Like, you will just come pick it up for you. Like, it was just became like it was literally the way people were doing business, and I just had no idea how quickly. I thought it would just seamlessly fit into the brick and mortar footprint. Yeah, it took over. I mean, women were like, "Well, just ship it to me." Even just living like you live right here, I live over in Tanglewood. Like, you're. You know, no, you're know. saying, no, you need to ship it to me. Like even today, I'm sitting want, at your, coffee yeah, t- you know, yeah, your I'm kitchen. not coming. Right. I'm not coming. I yet. don't have to get dressed up. I'm not. So or two return just, one. yeah. So even our Houston base, which is our Houston Dallas, our largest, they were ordering on my website online and not coming in anymore, but I still wasn't able to provide the type of service that I think they were used to. Even online, I was struggling to keep up with that. But what's interesting is how things come around in life is that I think there's been a real balance now. I think that's a little bit over. I think digital is still a value, and I know you sure. ordered lots of Christmas presents online. Almost I mean, all. Right. <laughs> but I still think brick and mortar now has eased back into people wanting more human interaction and tangible experience of product, especially luxury product. I think yeah. people still want that. That's so.
1: what it's funny is I tell people the story, they've seen it in Holly's, my two girls. They create like these PowerPoint presentations with pictures of their Christmas list with hyperlinks to the website. So yes, I did a lot of. <laughs>
0: for links to the uh, website,
1: <laughs> uh, but the higher end things, I did have to go to the store for a few things. So there so, you go. Yeah. I'm a living so, example of what you okay, just said. Good. good.
0: <laughs> Cause there is a place for brick and mortar and for human interaction and human connection and educating them on product and servicing them. Tell me where you're going. Tell me about, you know, what you need. And I think that's all finding much more of a balance now than it was six years ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about you as a leader. How How would you define your leadership style and and how did you try to show up, you know, in that twenty something years you were running Elaine Turner as a leader?
0: I think my biggest gift as a leader is I think I'm a very empathic person. I so I'm very committed to putting myself in somebody else's shoes. And I think that's helped me especially lead women because my 99% of my employees were women. And women hold a very complex position in society because of the roles and responsibilities that we have and the opportunities that we now have and the dual income families that we're creating. And so women are holding a lot of hats and are trying to be and do for a lot of people in their life. I like to call it the impossible paradigm, right? So I think that I held space for that. And I think that when I look back as a leader, I hopefully felt like most of the people who worked for me knew that they could pretty much come in and be vulnerable with me about what they could and could not do within the role that they had at my company. I also think that I'm a, I think I have vision. I don't want to like be arrogant and say I'm a visionary, but I think I have a lot of vision so I can look at things really high level and not get so in the weeds where we forget what we're doing as a company and what we're providing. So I'm very passionate about looking at things very philosophically and like, well, what is it we're ultimately trying to provide? What, what's our cut through line here? What are we trying to do? I think that's another attribute that I, I'm proud of. I think there's also challenges and opportunities and things where I've had to grow. I kind of lack structure. I've had to really lean in and into how do I build more structure. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are sort of impulsive and are like out there trying to fill the void. And I think I've had to really understand guardrails and understand how people need structure if they're going to work for me. So that's a big opportunity for me. It's like, okay, how do I provide them what they need to feel like they're doing their job the best that they can. And that's something I've had to work on. So, I mean, you know, As a leader, it's just like human. It's just being human, you know. There's some things that come really naturally to you and to me, but then there's other things. I'm like, oh yeah, she really wants to have an understanding of her roles and responsibilities. Let me write that up.
1: Better write that down. Yeah.
0: So I think it's it's just an evolution. It's a growth, you know.
1: Very good. So we we kind of started with edit, and we've gone. I I love what's gone. So I want to bring you back to that you know, you take a hiatus, obviously there was a pandemic in there and you're yeah. raising, as you said, you know, teenage daughter. And What was it that told you it was time to get back in the game?
0: Yeah, it's such a profound question. I, I, you know, I had no, I was really tunnel vision for probably three and a half years there where I was just in this mode of caretaking and frontline decision-making for my parents and my daughter and just And my husband had just recreated his whole deal and he was sort of out there sustaining us, you know, which we had never in our whole marriage had never not both worked. So that was a real interesting how we were going to figure each other out with our roles changing so much. Like I went through a deep identity crisis of like, well, who am I now? If I'm not this owner and this fashion person... I'm like, you know, who am I? I had a big grief process over kind of unraveling that. And he did too with me, you know, and so it was an interesting watching us try to figure each other out. But we actually made this decision to once our daughter transitioned to this therapeutic boarding school that we found for her that she's done beautifully well at, but it was really hard for my husband and I, we went and lived in Santa Fe for six months and sort of decided that we needed a healing opportunity, you know, of her kind of leaving the home and edit was kind of born in that sacred space. And I think it's because Chris, I had a moment that I could actually create space within myself for something new for me. Cause wow. for so many years, it was all about somebody else. Sure, I was trying sure. to kind of save these people that I love so dearly. And so I started talking to my husband saying, you know, I have some ideas of something that maybe we could think about. And he's hugely entrepreneurial too, which... Is a whole other conversation we could have, but he was. <laughs> well, maybe like, we'll and, have
1: him on. Uh, he is
0: <laughs> huge, and he was like, "Let's talk about it." And so we started brainstorming it over, you know, burritos, and, and we'd sit in town. And I started telling him kind of my thoughts about, you know, Tanglewood needs this new idea. We need to serve women and brick and mortars. You know, things are coming back. Cause I read all the time about consumer, you know, the product sector and retail. And he was like, I'm oh, in. I think we could do it. I think we need to bring that to the customer. And so it just slowly started seeping into me. And then I started going to market. And he would come with me, <laughs> finding all these unique lines, esoteric lines that nobody had heard of. Like a lady from Copenhagen was the first person to bring her to the U.S. And doing oh, wow. all these things where I was like, I'm going to take a risk. And she did great. I mean, we just had three months of selling with her. But anyway, so just really leaning into this idea of finding these really unique lines. And, and it took us about a year. I mean, We did a year of like negotiating the lease and meeting the contractors and coming up with the store idea, the space, and I'd love for you to come by and see it. I'm gonna come by.
1: So you know, tell where is the store now?
0: So it's on Woodway and Voss, right across from Second Baptist Church. So literally, kind of in the heart of Tanglewood residential area, right by that Carabas over there. You know, oh, perfect. Yeah, Yeah.
1: everyone knows where that is. I know. so. (laughs) So. uh, so you, second go round, you opened just recently, like about a couple months ago. Yeah, I opened October 9th. So yeah, what's today? Today January tenth. So yeah, just been a few months. Yeah. and going well. I take it.
0: It was it's great. I mean, it was just a total whirlwind because it's funny. I opened the store, of course, holiday time period. It's like you know, I'm trying to get press. I'm opening up during the busiest season of the you know the year in retail, and so it went great. And I we beat all the goals that we had, but it's been also kind of a internal reset for. Me me to kind of what is that balance for me being an owner again, but not losing kind of my sense of equanimity, if you will, like I, I can go real strong, real singular into my career. And I've had to kind of really do a lot of self-awareness work about, okay, Lane, this was a lot. So don't lose yourself in it. And cause you don't want to lose the joy in it. And so there's been, you know, even in the three months, there's been some setbacks that have happened already. There's been some huge wins that have happened already. I've had to hire a new team. And so, you know, I'm not going to lie and say, Oh, it's just all like, Oh, this perfect law. I mean, it's been where I'm like, Oh shit, I got to fix that. I got to do that. But you know, I'm doing it and, and I wouldn't be doing anything else.
1: So how would you compare kind of starting the first one to starting the second one?
0: So. I'll tell you
1: what, you know, I want you to answer that, but I'll tell you, you know, I remember what? when I, we were about to have a, a second child and I I looked at someone and they're like, oh, they, people think, oh, you got this, you know what you're doing. And I said, you tell me something you've done for the second time in your life and you felt like an expert, right? <laughs> oh my God, it's
0: so true. <laughs> I mean, it's been so, it's so funny because the first time I was so young, And, you know, with youth comes a nice amount of ignorance. (laughs) And so you have no idea what you're about to do or the consequences of what you're about to do. And you're like, yeah, I got this. You know, I'm going to put some little money in. We're going to start this thing. And I started getting handbags shipped to me from Brooklyn in my living room. And I had a baby at the time. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to figure this out. But when you're young, you know, you feel good. Your body works. You're like, I've got it. And then as you age and you understand what really the consequences are of choices that you make, you become much more thoughtful and mindful and cautious about what you're going to actually do and the choices that you make in your life. And so edit was very mindfully thought out before I did it, before I signed that lease. But with that said, it's been a whirlwind, you know, and so, and I'm older And so I don't have the reserves. I'd really believe that. I don't have the reserves that I I had. So it's funny that you asked me that because my new year goal for edit was simplification. I need to kind of pull back a little bit simplify some of these you know i get real ahead of myself you know right. and kind of look at it through clearer eyes and how do i build a sustainable business with a digital footprint and a brick and mortar footprint and how do those seamlessly go together and so it's really been about how do i make this something that is balanced and joyful And even in the hard stuff, I can see the joy and it doesn't get away from me. It doesn't go off the rails, you know, but it's hard. I mean, the second one isn't necessarily easier. No, it's uh, just different. That makes sense to me.
1: Right. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Elaine, what a wonderful story. And (laughs) you're just a joy to be with. So we're going to go a little personal to wrap this thing up. Uh, What was your first
0: job? My first job was working at Sugar Creek Country Club's tennis shop. No. but are, do you want Selling to know? tennis what? clothes, huh? <laughs> well, I was stringing rackets. I was a big tennis player. Okay. And I was a teenager. But I guess if you're saying my first kind of yeah. real job, no, was that, that, that well, was job. That's what I was looking for, it's like what tennis... you
1: did when you had your first job to make a paycheck.
0: <laughs> the tennis. I worked at the yeah, the tennis shop.
1: And so my favorite question especially for the lifelong Texans is what do you prefer, Tex-Mex or barbecue? Tex-Mex. Okay. No hesitation. Finally, we'll wrap this up on this question. If you could take a thirty day sabbatical, where would you go and what would you do?
0: I go to Santa Fe. I love Santa Fe. Okay. And I would do grounding, healing, nature, kind of I feel like that place kind of resets your soul. And so I'd engage in being outside and being in the food. The food there is so wonderful. But yeah, I'd do Santa Fe.
1: Perfect. Elaine, thank you so much for taking the time. Mm-hmm. Congratulations on the second Thanks, go around with edit. I there uh, we no go. Doubt it's going to be successful, right? So oh, thank you. And uh, we look forward to, to coming to the store and, and maybe we'll do an event there.
0: Oh, I'd love it. And thank you. I'm grateful.
1: And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at BoyerMiller.com forward slash podcast. And you can find out more about all the ways our firm can help you at BoyerMiller.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.